Would you now praise for those, as we read, he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Pray for those who are sick. Pray for those who are sick and infirm. And also thanking God that these bodies are not forever. Heavenly Father, we know that sickness is a result of the curse of sin, and we live with that reality, and we pray for those that, that we know and, and those that we know right now are, are sick, that are suffering, that have different ailments, and I'm sure some of these family members that we can think on are, are, are dealing with sickness, dealing with different maladies, Lord, and we pray for your healing power. We pray in the powerful name of Christ that you would bring healing and for the glory of your name to those that we, we know that are sick. But we do thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the curse of sin is not forever and we can have eternal hope for a new body one day through the power of, you, of your spirit. And lastly, would you pray? Pray with me for an awesome display of God's power here in South Richmond specifically, through his work of establishing a healthy, gospel-saturated, disciple-making, missionary-sending, church-planting, local church. Would you pray for that? Lord, we know your plan for getting the good news to people. Getting the good news to people that reveals the hope, reveals the truth, everything that we've just prayed for. Lord, the purpose of the church is to deliver the message of hope. So we want to be continuing the ministry of Christ here in South Richmond by being a local church that's unified, that takes the Bible seriously, and lives out our faith. So would you help us? Lord, I pray for my brother Jonathan now. As he preaches, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the truth of your word, its integrity, its clarity, and power. And I pray that his word would give him clarity, give him confidence in you, and help us, our hearts, our minds, our ears to be attuned to hearing truth this morning and applying it to our lives because you're worthy of that. So I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Good to see you. Raise your hand if you have already decorated for Christmas, or put something out for Christmas. That's almost more than half. Wow. Methel's family, come on. 
We got Thanksgiving. You guys are hosting Thanksgiving, right? It's a big deal. God bless you. I was telling your, your daughters ladies today need to be helping out with the meals this year. I think this year's the year. I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. That has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, if you have your Bibles, get them out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. Continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you don't bring your Bible to church, uh, would, would love to encourage you to do that. Um, not so that you can look holier, but because it's helpful to, to gain a familiarity with, with your Bible. The Bible that you're going to read hopefully in the mornings and throughout the week. Uh, it's a good opportunity to flip around together as a church and uh, potentially gain a little bit of a familiarity with the with the text, so that you can make your way through it on your on your own time. So bring your Bibles to church, or if you have an app, that that's fine too. We're in Matthew chapter five, and this morning we're going to look at verse eight for a few moments together. Eighteen fifty six. Eighteen fifty six. One of the most important yet lesser known dates in human history. It was on that. In that year that an invention was born that would change the shape of our society for generations. It happened at the Parker House Hotel in Boston, Massachusetts, when a group of pastry chefs led by the French Mossberg Sanzians stumbled upon the creation of a silky smooth, delectably sweet substance, which they called Boston cream. As any doni, donut, doni, as any uh, donut lover knows, the Boston cream donut stands tall above the rest. The pinnacle of pastries, rich chocolate icing atop the soft yeast donut, filled in the center with the pure goodness of Boston cream. Brian knows what I'm talking about. But as with anything valuable, there are counterfeits. The simple vanilla icing filled donut, even the Bavarian cream, may look the same on the outside, but the inside is what tells the story. The inside is what really counts. You could have the perfect chocolate icing on top, the perfect shape, the perfect color donut, but without that coveted Boston cream in the center, it's just a sham. Friends, in much the same way, the God who made you cares most about what's happening on the inside. The inside of your, your heart, the inner man, tells the story. The inside is where it counts. There may be many counterfeits, many religious counterfeits that look good, that look clean, that look put together on the outside, but the Lord looks at your heart. Read with me the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount leading up to our key verse in verse 8. We'll start in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's our verse. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me give you a quick orientation to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and then I want to highlight just a couple of things from this verse. We, we arrive here at chapter 5 on the heels of chapters 1 to 4. Um, that was free, right? I'm so glad I came this morning. Jonathan can do math. Uh, but in chapters 1 to 4, what Matthew has done is he's gone to great lengths to, to set up the fact that Jesus is the king of Israel, right? There's many ways you can think about Jesus, many angles you can come at him from. Matthew wants to highlight that Jesus is king. He's the king of Israel, and he will be the king of the whole world. If you let your eyes glance up to chapter 4, verse 17... You'll see Jesus, one of the first things that he says in the Gospel of Matthew is he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's here, it's near. The kingdom of heaven is here. Glance at verse 23 of chapter 4. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. So as we settle into chapter 5, one of the things that we've been saying is that the king is here, and the king is speaking, and the king is speaking about the nature or the culture of his kingdom. Jesus goes up onto the hillside, his disciples gather around him, he opens his mouth, and he lays out really the, the constitution of the kingdom. You think about the constitution of the United States and how it defines what the, the culture of our society is supposed to be like, what sort of way of life we're supposed to see here in our country. Jesus is doing that here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes, this first little section of blessings, is the preamble, the preamble to the constitution of the kingdom. And I, and I hope that you notice right at the outset, this, this kingdom is uh, in great contrast to the kingdoms of the world. You could say that it's upside down even. It's an upside down kingdom. The, the poor in spirit, the, the merciful, the mourning, the, those who hunger, the pure in heart, these are those who are blessed. The, the kingdom of God is, is upside down, it's, it's inside out. All of these things, hungering for righteousness, poor in spirit, mourning, pure in heart, these are concerned first and foremost with the inside of a person. The, God's concerned with, with your inside. That's how we know that you're a citizen of the kingdom is what's going on in the subterranean level of your heart. If we put our focus where the world does and buy into the soul-crushing pressure of manufacturing, manipulating, and manicuring our appearances and circumstances, we will be blind to the things of God, which often operate under the surface. But if, like Jesus, by the power of God's spirit, we look to the inside and invite him in to, to help us on the inside, we will gain spiritual sight. Blessed, fortunate, happy, flourishing, full of life are the pure in heart. 
they shall see God. Let's break this into three parts, looking first at the heart, then the, the purity that's spoken of here, and then the sight that we gain, the sight of God. So first, the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. That word heart there is cardias, the Greek word cardias. That's where we get uh, our word cardiology. Uh, and it means far more than just your emotions. A lot of times we think about the heart uh, as if it, it's akin to your emotions, your, your feelings. Um, but, but it means more than that. The heart is really the, the center and the source of who you are. It's a, this is like a heavy-duty word. It's like the command center for, for your person. If you think about uh, the, the inside of yourself and there's a command center with all the buttons and toggles that kind of determines what direction your life is going to go, that command center is your heart. More than what your head knows or what your hands do, what your heart loves will determine the sort of person that you will become. Maybe you've heard Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Jesus picked up on that theme when speaking with the prostitute at the well, who, by the way, by all appearances, would have looked like the furthest thing from a citizen of God's kingdom that you could imagine. And Jesus told her that the, the kingdom of God was available to her, to even her. And that if she loved Jesus and received his love for her, rivers of living water would flow from her heart. The heart, friends, is the center of God's redeeming activity in your life. As much as we would like his redeeming activity to be focused on our bank account or our circumstances, God's work is subterranean. And that's because the heart is the, the source of who we are, the center of who we are and who we will become. Jesus points this out later in Matthew in chapter 15, in fact, this is an important passage, so if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, or you can just listen, I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. So Jesus is catching heat. Jesus and his disciples are catching heat because they're not, they're not going through the process of ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. This was a big deal. So the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are not happy about this. What's the deal? Why are you eating with unwashed hands, right? You're going to be unholy before God if you do that. And Jesus is pushing back a little bit. And here's what he says in verses 18 to 20. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? Proceeds from the heart. And this, the heart, defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In other words, the heart really tells the story of what's going on spiritually in a person. The heart is where it counts. I'm going to paraphrase a great quote uh, from, from an author that I respect. He said this, picture this. And, and the reason why this is important, well, I'm going to get to it. Um, there was once a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. 
The stream was fed by springs that were as old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam upon it, and you could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swam within. And high in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as the keeper of the stream. He had been hired so long ago that now no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spot to another, removing branches or falling leaves or debris that might pollute the water upstream. But his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided that they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised that old man anyways. They had roads to repair and services to offer and landscaping to do. What's the point of an unseen stream cleaner? And so the keeper of the stream abandoned his post. High in the mountains, the springs went untended. Twigs and branches and dead animals muddied and poisoned the flow of the water. For a time, no one in the village noticed. But after a while, the water just wasn't the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play by it. And some people in the town began to grow ill. The town council tried to fix the problem by throwing more money into infrastructure and marketing campaigns and welfare programs and decorations for the town square. But no matter how much money they spent, and how much work they did, no matter how many changes were made down below, everyone began to notice the loss of beauty and life. You see, the village depended on the stream, and the stream depended on the keeper. Your heart is the stream, and you are the keeper. Your heart is the stream that that flows out into the rest of your life and the rest of your relationships. And God calls us to participate in keeping the stream clean. One of the most pervasive lies that Satan wants us to believe is that if enough external things around us change, then everything will be good. You, you ever feel this way? You know, if we just had better political policies here in our country, if, if people just had more education, if we just had more wealth, you know, if I just had a better job, if, if I had a more faithful spouse, if I had better friends, if I had a better church, then everything would be okay. Wrong. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the fortunate in circumstances. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say blessed are the secure in income. That's not what he says. He doesn't say blessed are the correct in opinion. That's, that's not what he says. He, he doesn't even say blessed are the religious in attitude or blessed are the virtuous in behavior. Blessed are those who say the right stuff and serve the most. He doesn't say that. He says blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I fear that many of us, and I, I'm, I am 
guilty of this. We, we focus so much on what we do that we completely miss what is going on in the inner parts of our soul. And we look at others and we think about what they do and what they say. And we miss what's going on in the deeper levels of their heart. We do this as parents, right? We see the behavior of our kids and we just want to fix it externally. Well, what's going on there? Like, why are they doing that? What's happening on the deeper, deeper level of their heart? We feel better about ourselves. Look at how much I serve. Look at how much money I give. Man, I show up week after week and I'm on time. Unlike the Bowells and the Hanleys. I'm on time. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. So what is this purity? What is this purity of heart? What does this mean? What does this look like? Um, maybe if you grow up in church, your your mind jumps to like, Sexual purity, right? Uh, abstaining from from uh, certain types of sexual sin. Maybe you had a purity ring growing up. Save yourself for marriage. Those things are good. Those things are not bad. In fact, God cares a great deal about uh, sexual purity. He cares a great deal about how we act. But to put the emphasis there in this text would be missing the point that Jesus is making. Remember, Jesus is driving at the heart. And there's this continual battle, this continual conflict going on between Jesus and all the Pharisees who, who keep putting the emphasis on the outside. That they are those that Jesus said, clean the outside of the cup, but, but inside are dirty. They're like whitewashed tombs, really nice on the outside, but inside just full of dead bones. So avoiding external sinful behavior is wise, it's healthy. But that is something that you can do on the surface level and still have a heart that is far from God. You can be crushing it on the outside and have a heart that is far from God. And I can tell you, you could be serving the church. You could be preaching sermons. You could be a pastor and have a heart that is not experiencing the intimacy of God. Maybe I'm alone in this. The word purity here is katharos. It means, uh, well, it can mean a few different things. Let me throw some synonyms at you. It can mean unstained, unmixed, undivided, honest. It was a word often used in the Old Testament to refer to ritual and ceremonial purity. Uh, so you could think about the idea of pure wine. There were sacrifices given when they would they would pour pure wine upon the, the altar. This pure wine, it means this idea that it's unmixed. It's not cut with anything. It's, it's pure. It's undiluted. There are several ways that we can apply this to the heart, but I'm going to focus just on two. Um, purity of heart can mean two things. Uh, I think two primary things. Uh, sinless and sincere. Okay? Sinless and sincere, sinlessness and sincerity, okay? And th these two forms of purity fall into two categories with regards to our salvation. Uh, I'm going to spend the most time on the second one, but you got to address the first so that you don't get confused. Uh, and the first 
And I'm not just giving you these words to be kitschy. I want this to be helpful for you. The first is a positional purity. So sinlessness is positional. It's a positional purity. deals with the state of your heart before God. And the second is a progressive or participatory purity. So you've got positional purity, sinlessness, and then you've also got progressive or participatory purity, which, which deals with sincerity. Okay? That's something that we have more control over, something that we participate in. To have a sinless heart, to have a heart that is not mixed with sin, that is not diluted by sin, that is not corrupted by sin, is ultimately not something that we have control over. You either have a sinless heart before God, or you do not. God looks at your heart, and he either sees your sin, or he does not. And on the surface, this is not very encouraging, because who of us has a sinless heart? All of us love and desire and pursue things other than God, which is why all of us are born spiritually blind. There's that connection there between purity and seeing God. If our hearts are impure, if they are full of sin, we can't see God because God does not allow those who are full of sin into his presence. Right? Seeing God isn't just like seeing him physically, it's, it's being in his presence. Think about going to see the doctor, right? Or the doctor will see you now. Right? This idea of being brought into the, the presence of God. God cannot be in the presence of sin. So those with sinful hearts are, are, are rejected out of the presence of God. We cannot see him. We're blind. And in our natural state, that's all of us. We ought to read verse 8 and be like, oh, no. That's not good. <laughs> Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am free from sin. Rhetorical question answers no one. Here's an important verse in verse John 1, 8. First John, he says, if we say we have no sin, he's writing to believers, to Christians. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in one sense, all of us read verse 8 and we're like, uh-oh. This does not apply to me. I do not have a pure heart. But here's the good news. The good news is, and we read it this morning, Adam stole my thunder with his scripture reading corruption. God has promised to give us new hearts. Hearts which he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, on the basis of the work of Christ, purifies our hearts that positionally, in his sight, we are pure. Positionally, in his sight, we have pure hearts. So that when God looks at you, he sees through all of your problems, all of your mess, and he sees the purity of Christ that rests upon you so that you can be brought into the presence of God. He promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, the only one who has a pure heart, the only one who sees God is Christ, Jesus, the Son. Right? We read in, in, in uh, John chapter 1, there is only one who has seen God the Father, and it is the Son. But he has made him known to us. So Jesus, the Son of God, in the presence of God, seeing God in all of his perfection, because Christ has a pure heart, 
comes to earth, and he's the only human being in the history of the world that could ever read verse 8, that could ever say verse 8, and it be true. He has a pure heart. And then he goes through his life, and he perfectly fulfills all of God's commands, and he fulfills them not just externally, by the way. Notice Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate. Notice Jesus gleaned wheat on the Sabbath, which he wasn't supposed to do. Notice Jesus touched lepers, which the law forbid people to do. So it wasn't just that he, he was perfect on the outside, externally, getting a thumbs up from the Pharisees. No, he, he fulfilled the, the heart of the law perfectly. And then what did he do? What did he do? He, he went to the cross. He went to the cross because, because death, and separation from God is the penalty for impure hearts. He was perfect, but then he, he died the death that we deserve. He died the death that Wayne deserves. He, he died the death that Jorgen deserves. He, he died the death that, that I deserve. He experienced separation from the Father because the Father can't be in the presence of impurity. And he became sin. All of our impurities fell upon the body of Christ, and he was crushed. And the Father turned his face away. It wasn't just that he died, it was that he received the wrath of God. It wasn't just that he died, it was that he was separated from the, the intimate presence of the Father in that moment. And he did that for impure friends of God like us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Because friends, when we have faith in Christ, Everything that he did and all that he is, is applied to us. So that when the Father, when a holy God looks at you, he sees the purity of his son. When, when a holy God, who cannot be in the presence of evil, looks at you, even in the moment of you sinning, he sees the purity and the perfection of his son. When a holy God looks at you, even in the moment of your rebellion and rejection, he sees purity. You are pure. You are beautiful to God the Father because the purity of Christ is applied to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be admitted into the presence of God. They shall see God. And we can all receive this through faith in Christ. But I don't think that Jesus' main point here has to do with our positional salvation. All of these are things he's inviting us to participate in so that we can experience more and more of the blessing and the flourishing that God wants to give us through our participation. He's not, he's not just saying, Blessed are those who are saved, who receive my purity, who are positionally pure before God, for they shall see God in eternity. That's true, but that's not the main point. The point is, blessed are those who participate in this purity of heart, for they will see more and more of God over the course of a lifetime. And here, we're talking about sincerity. We're talking about hearts that are not mixed or diluted or corrupted by, by falsehood, by falsehood, by hypocrisy, okay? 
This is really the battle that he's after with the, with the Pharisees, is their hypocrisy. They say one thing, they do one thing, but, but there's, there's disintegration from what's going on on the inside. Psalm 51, David says, Behold, you delight, God, you delight in truth in the inward being. Listen to this. This is a big deal. This is a big deal for David to say this in the Old Covenant. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God is after the heart. And he's after a heart that is honest and sincere about where it is. That passage in 1 John that I read a minute ago, it continues. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an ongoing reality. If we say we have sin and we confess our sin, if we're honest and sincere about what's going on in our hearts, the Lord will apply the work of Christ to us over time. John Stott says, only the pure in heart will see God, for only the utterly sincere and honest can bear the dazzling vision in whose light the darkness of deceit must vanish and in whose fire all shams are burnt up. The purity of heart that Jesus is after is sincerity, is honesty, is authenticity, you could say. Let me give you one more example. And this, again, highlights this clash between Jesus and the Pharisees. He goes on and he tells a story in Luke 18. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself. And by the way, we, when we read Pharisee, we think bad guys. Because that's just, they, they kind of were bad guys a lot of times in their interactions with Jesus. But the original audience would have heard Pharisees and, like, they were the good guys. Like, Pharisees were the ones that had it going on. They were the ones that you went to meet with to learn about Torah. Like, the, the Pharisees were good guys. So he's like, here you have a good guy and a bad guy, right? And they go up to the temple, and the Pharisee, who, who they would have understood to be the good guy, is standing by himself and praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, the bad guy, the sinner, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For I tell you, that man went down from the temple justified or made right, made holy, made pure before God. Not the good guy. Not the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the application here is to be honest. To be honest. To not be a hypocrite. Don't hide behind your good behavior. Don't hide behind your good circumstances. Don't hide behind the things that you do at church or in community. Don't hide behind those things. If, you're, if, if there's disintegration from where your heart's at and all the things that you're doing to serve, God doesn't care about what you're doing. He doesn't even want it. Stop. Just stop. 
If you're running yourself ragged, trying to do all the right stuff, trying to serve a bunch and show up super early and be seen, and your heart is not in tune with the work of God, he, that's not pleasing to him. Just stop. And here's the blessing, that the pure in heart, the sincere in heart, the contrite in heart, the honest in heart, they see God because they give God space to work. Like if your self-perception and the perception that you put out to other people is that you have it together, that you got it going on, that you know all the right stuff and that you do all the right stuff and that you're better than everybody else, like where is there room for God to show up and do what only he can do? Like anybody can do that with enough training and coaching. Like I want to see the power of God at work. Paul said this. Look at what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 12. So God humbled Paul. He gave him suffering. He gave him weakness. He gave him thorn in the flesh. Paul says, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable, right? It, it, it's not comfortable to, 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 be, to be sincere in this way. Why is it not comfortable? Well, because it's, it's, you have to embrace your suffering as a part of life, and you have to be okay that other people see you as someone who doesn't have it all together. That's not comfortable. I want people to see me as God going on. It's not comfortable. Paul's praying, God, take this away from me, please. I, I don't want my life to be like this. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my service to the church. No, that's not what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my moral behavior. Wait a minute, that's not what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my precise theology. Oh, wait, that's not what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we are sincere in this way, friends, when we're not on the hamster wheel of posturing, but when we are real before God and real before one another, sincere and pure hearts, we see God at work because we need him to, and there's space for him to do what only he can do. If I'm just busy doing everything, like wh where's the room for God to show up and do something miraculous? I gotta be like, yo, I don't know what to do here. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what to say. I don't know what job to take. Like, like I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. There's space for God to move and for you and for other people to see the hand of God at work in your life in a powerful way. And we should have motivation to, to speak in these terms with one another because we've already received the positional purity of Christ. Like what you think about me whether or not you think I'm doing a good job doesn't change what God thinks about me. God sees his perfect son when he looks at Jonathan Bowen. Now, I don't always believe this, but it's true. 
I don't care what you think about me. I just don't care because I've got the approval of God. He sees me as pure. He sees me as spotless. He sees me as guiltless. So I can bear my soul before you guys and say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's okay because it doesn't change who I am at the deepest level of my heart before God. We embrace our purity of hearts and then we live in sincerity, unmixed, not hypocrites, and we give God space to work. So here's some, some application for you. Um, I think most of us probably are gonna be spending time with family over Thanksgiving. Um, this is the last thing I'm gonna say. Um, and like, well, I'll just tell you, like my temptation when I'm around family I come from a ministry family, right? So I get a lot of questions of like, hey, how's it going? How's the church, right? How's it going? How are things going? Like my temptation is to be like, I don't know how it's going. Glad you asked. We are crushing it. Like I'm crushing it. We're crushing it. Here are all these exciting things that we got going on. Here are all the people that we've baptized, right? Like, I want my dad and my uncle and my family and my cousins to think that Jonathan Bowell has it going on. That's my temptation. That's my temptation. I think the purity of heart that Christ is speaking of here, the purity of heart that Christ is speaking of here is a heart that says, man, it's been a hard season. It's been a hard season. And, like, I just feel like Jesus is carrying me. I don't know what I'm doing. I've made some big mistakes. And like, I'm just trying to cling to Jesus. And he's kind to me. I'm seeing him. I'm seeing him show up. In fact, I'm kind of seeing him show up in, in my life and in my heart and my relationship with him more than I have ever before. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. So here's the application is as you're interacting with family members and friends over Thanksgiving is to be sincere, be honest. Don't be a hypocrite. Right? You don't see these people all the time. The temptation is going to be to put on a good face. Right? Don't do that. You're going to rob yourself and you're going to rob them of the opportunity to see the hand of God at work. You could either be seen as God, or you could be seeing God. That's your choice. You could be seen as God, or you could be seeing God. And I want to be seeing God. So, Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you drive out hypocrisy from our church, from our families, from ourselves? Would we, would we be true and pure before you and before other people that what you see and what they see is what is real about where we're at? And would that create space for your grace to be at work, the power of Christ? It's not about me. It's not about us. Look at what Jesus is doing. We want to see Jesus. For those of us who 
cling to or, or crave the right circumstances to feel close to God, to feel that God is at work. Pray that we would just lay that before him in repentance. Lord, our circumstances, our relationships, our community, our houses, our jobs, our church is not the problem. You're wanting to do something in my heart. Would you, Lord, help me to see what you're doing in my heart? What you're teaching my heart through this difficult season. And for those of us who, who try to manufacture a, an image, who try to do all the right stuff, who try to be seen as having it together, as a, as, as a way to feel close to God, as a way to feel spiritual, as a, as a way to feel secure, I pray that we would lay that down before Jesus as well. Lord, I could tithe all that I have. I could serve every day. I could say all the right stuff. I could give over my body to be burned. But if I have not love for you and I'm not receiving love from you, then it is ultimately all meaningless. I pray that you would help me to, to care about my inner person, my heart. You would help me to say no to things or to do things invisibly out of the eye of other people and not talk about it, that I would be unseen so that I can meet with you in that private secret place and so that you can change my heart and do what only you can do. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Would you look at my heart, Lord, and would you change me into the person that you want me to be? And Jesus, we thank you that we can pray in this way because you have come near. We thank you that, that this morning, all of us beheld God. As we read the Sermon on the Mount and we sing and we come to the communion table, we have an opportunity to see God as we look upon the beauty of Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. Thank you for moving close to sinners like us to reveal the beauty of God and to change us into that beauty as well. Help us to worship you with pure and contrite hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.